You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Green and Gold History. 50-plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Well, it's time for Episode 3 of Memories with Steve Lucinich. 54 years with the athletics and all the great memories of the great times here with the A's and here at the Oakland Coliseum. And, Boose, as we were getting into the 70s, uh, getting ready to, to hit that great stretch where the A's went to the postseason five straight years. And I do want to get to that. And, and one player in particular that really had a magical year among players, and that's Vida. But before we get to 71, he throws a no-hitter in 1970. There was a time where he was going to be sent out, and he wasn't being used when he first came up. And then he be- began to grow to the kind of dominant pitcher that – that he became during those few years. What, what was that process like watching him grow for the, for the athletics? Well, even back in 68, the first year in Oakland, we knew about Vita Blue. He was putting up record numbers in the Midwest League. And so in 69, we came to the point where we needed a left-handed starter. They thought they might as well reach down and get the best one in the system, and Vita came up. and He didn't do too well. So 70, he comes up maybe a couple times and then uh, throws a no-hitter in September, and you could really see a flash of brilliance. You knew it was there, it just needed to get it to the forefront. Pitched very well, and then he started the 71 season on a tremendous record. Lost on opening day in Washington, D.C., and then ran off 10 straight victories, I think, right after that. Total dominating baseball, cover of Time Magazine, cover of Sports Illustrated, uh, just a talk of baseball. And anytime he pitched, we had bigger crowds. Charlie Finley, one time, arranged uh, a game that he was going to pitch to be on TV, and it normally wasn't a, a scheduled game to be on television from the road, and it had record setting, uh, record viewership, set records. And so uh, anytime he pitched in Oakland, it was a much bigger crowd, and uh, he had a tremendous season. I didn't realize, looking back at the history of the 71 campaign, that there was a, quote, presidential opener, just the one game in Washington, and then the team came back out, headed, headed back out west, and Vida got that game to start over Catfish, which some people thought didn't make a whole lot of sense, except that Vida was someone that they wanted to push out there on opening day. What do you recall about how unique that was to have the one game in, the, uh, in our nation's capital to start the baseball season? Well, you know what? I never knew anything about it until uh, that year. I mean, I always knew that they started there the day after Cincinnati opened. But um, I don't know if it was always a one-game series or not. Uh, that's news to me, and maybe it always was, or maybe it was just a special thing that, that year. But we came back after that, and we lost the next two games. We were 0-3, and Charlie makes a trade with the Yankees, and and uh, we've got the uh, historic 71 A's. We won uh, uh, 98 games after, or 101 games after that because we lost the first three and play, faced Baltimore in the playoffs. But Vida's year was special. Charlie came out, <clears throat> figured he had to do something special for him because all the extra large crowds were when he was pitching. So he bought him a Cadillac, and I think Vida at the time would have rather had a Grand Prix because most of the players were driving Grand Prix, and there was something about a, a young guy driving a big Cadillac, especially he got the hard-to-get-in uh, um, edition of the Cadillac Eldorado convertible, which was tough to get. People were on a list for two or three years to try to get that vehicle. Can I guess what color it was? It was light blue. <laughs> and so he gave it to him and he said uh, and he got the Atlantic Richfield Company, which was the predecessor to Arco. 
uh, to give them lifetime, not lifetime, but gas for a year. So Vida got all these certificates for gas and uh, passed them around to everybody. But uh, it was fun because the license plate, he sped it through. He couldn't get blue. So it was already taken, so he sped it through the California Department of Motor Vehicles and got V-Blue. And one time, Vida was on the road, and he let me drive his car. That was kind of fun. I'll never forget, I was driving back from Sacramento, and all oh, these cars started honking. And I forgot the license plate said V-Blue, and they were all expecting to see Vida. And I'm thinking, God, if you're really A's fan, you know the A's are in New York today, and not, not driving back from Sacramento, going through Fairfield. So uh, it was a fun time. Vida was a fun guy, and... Uh, what, he won 24 games that year, struck out over 300 guys. There was an incident at the end of the season where Mickey Lowich, I think, passed him on wins, and some smart-ass reporter from the Hayward Review, Charlie Tonelli, came in and said, what do you think about Mickey Lowich passing you? And Vida says, I don't care. Mickey's not going to negotiate my salary next year. And he knew. So then he knew that was always on Vida's mind, the salary for the following year. But... Uh, uh, it was a real special year, won 101 games, lost three to, in a row to the Orioles, unfortunately. They were a veteran team. It was our first playoff experience for so many of our guys. Well, let's, let's take a step back to an 18-year-old kid driving a Cadillac around uh, Fairfield uh, and what that was like. Was the top down? How much, Was it a one-time deal that you got a chance to drive the car? I drove it a few times, but I never did drive it with a top down because I was afraid if I put it down, it wouldn't go back up. So, uh, no, I never drove it as a true convertible. I just drove it a- around a little bit. I had to take it to a dealership to get it serviced on one road trip. But uh, uh, he was actually living in West Oakland then at the Acorn Housing Project with a friend of ours and uh, so- so- somewhat uh, unsafe area, but uh, they all looked after Vita. You know, we-, we go back to the beginning of that season because there was a change again at manager from Charlie, and he brings in Dick Williams. Now, Dick managed the Impossible Dream team in 1967 with the Red Sox, and a lot of people talked about him as a disciplinarian. That team had finished in ninth place the year before. He comes to here in Oakland with a team that was in second place and maybe on the verge of having good young talent and a guy that, again, still was a taskmaster in attention to detail. How did you see him with this style of a club and how he felt like he could get the most out of the Oakland A's at that time? Well, I think it was well-written, and I've said it before, too. We didn't realize how bad fundamentals fundamentally we were. Uh, Dick was a stress of, of case of fundamentals, do it right, throw it to the right base, hit the cutoff man, butt when you can. Uh, so he had that in the spring training. He really worked the guys on that. And uh, we got off to a decent start in 72, and it really came to fruition, uh, obviously, with the World Series. But Dick was a disciplinarian. That happened in 71. He... he threw his weight around after an incident on a bus, after an airplane ride from Oakland to Milwaukee, and he wasn't afraid of any of the players going to Charlie Finley as they would do before with previous managers, go around the manager. He said, here, I've got Charlie's number right here. If anybody wants it, you call him. And that was the notorious incident with Catfish Hunter supposedly took a bullhorn off the plane and the bus wasn't allowed to leave the Milwaukee airport till it was returned and Dick stood up and said all that. And next thing you know, there was a clank on the floor and the bullhorn hit the ground. And uh, that was kind of a waking moment for everybody to realize Dick was in Boston. He was in charge. You talked about the 10 straight wins for, for Vida in the year that he wins 24 in 1971. It was 10 complete games. It was five shutouts. He throws 312 innings. Now, you've seen everybody that's thrown a pitch in the history of the Oakland Athletics. I know it's a short list, and I know there's a lot of arms out there that deserve 
consideration. Where, where is Vida from, from, from the standpoint of just the power and the strength and what he brought to the mound, especially in that 71 campaign? Well, nowadays, everybody throws 95, 98. If you don't look, if you're not throwing 90, you're not throwing hard. Vida was hitting the low to mid 90s and blowing people away. And he had that special pitch he called a slurve. It was kind of a slider, kind of a curve. He called it a slurve, and that was his strikeout pitch if he wasn't blowing away with a high fastball. And uh, seen a lot of guys come through with uh, his velocity after that. Uh, I used to marvel at going down on the field and watching Nolan Ryan because uh, he was the hardest thrower in the league then. And we, later on, we got guys like Jason Isringhausen that could really get bring it up there. So, uh, But Vida was a cut above all the other pitchers at that time. You know, during that season, you know, Reggie hits, what, uh, I think 32 home runs. He had the 47 home run season in, in 69. Sal hits 24 home runs, Sal Bando. And there's a guy named Raleigh Fingers who was a starter for a long time, but suddenly he ends up with... 17 saves out of the bullpen at a time where the save is still something we're kind of learning about. And it certainly was much different back at that time as opposed to what we see now where the guy starts the ninth inning, gets three outs, and he walks away. What do you remember? First, let's start with Raleigh. What do you remember about the guy that, and he's even talked about this, how uncomfortable he was as a starter and how it seemed that the bullpen was the right role for him? It's funny. In 69, he made his first start, and he threw a shutout against the Twins, and he was never to be found as a starter after that. So the funny thing is about him, and it went right into the World Series later on, is, is he would come in for a three-inning save, three and two-thirds innings. I remember Earl Weaver always used to be screaming from the dugout, we got to score runs before that big son of a comes in here. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was set up for that because he didn't have time to worry about it. And that's what everybody said. He would worry the night before he made a start. So he'd just say, hey, Raleigh, get up and throw and come firing in. And, and he would. And he was unfazed by everything. If he gave something up, he just kind of laughs and say, they got me this time. We know that Reggie's in the Hall of Fame, and we know that he's hit over 500 home runs in his career. But I go back to, to what could have happened with the great first half of 69, people thought he was chasing the record and never got there. Though 47 is a great number. Was that a number that, that at that time, was it something he was concerned about? Was he so wrapped up in home runs that maybe affected other parts of his game? Or he was just a naturally gifted guy that, that hit the home runs and that was part of Reggie Jackson's game? Well, I think he never talked about breaking any records. And he was ahead of Roger Maris's pace. Every day he was in a paper how he was ahead of Babe Ruth's pace. Well, the thing about that was Babe Ruth, the year he hit 60 home runs, he hit a bunch of them in September. So you're going to be ahead of that pace all, all year if you're in any kind of chase. Uh, the record didn't mean anything to him. I mean, if he did, he kept it to himself. But uh, I think the pressure got to him. He had to spend a few days in the hospital. It came down with hives. And he had 37 home runs at the All-Star break, but only hit 10 after. And that's, I think the pressure got to him. Booz, this is your fourth year, 1971, at that time with the organization. We've talked about how you started, you know, as a 15-year-old. Joe DiMaggio saw you, and the, the rest, as 54 layers we find out, has worked out quite well for you. What was it like at that point? You've been around enough now. You've certainly begun to have a lay of the land, if you will. The players have gotten comfortable with you. You've gotten comfortable with them. What was that growing relationship like back then? You know, in 69 and 70, we were competitive, but we didn't win in divisions. In 71, we finally took it over, and it was Dick Williams. But to see these guys, you knew that these guys, the Joe Rudys, the Campies, and those guys were gelling together. So many of them had played together in the minor leagues. It doesn't mean that just because you're friends and you come up together, you're going to be good. But these guys were good. Uh, my relationship with them was, you know, I totally respected them as athletes. 
their way they worked and the way they went about business. Um, it's funny because back then the players would show up at 4, 4.30 for a game at 7.30. Now they come in at noontime. Back then we didn't have weight rooms, we didn't have video, we didn't have music, we didn't have TVs. Uh, so it was kind of a shorter day for us being around the players, but interacting with them and respecting them and uh, never saying anything cross to any of them. Uh, it's all part of the job and being involved, and that's why I think I've lasted. What did you remember about the playoffs of that year against a veteran team with a lot of great names in the Baltimore Orioles? You touched on it earlier, you know, the three games, but what was it like facing McNally and Palmer and, and Robinson and Robinson and Boog Powell, those established names that the A's eventually would certainly uh, cut their own path in a very successful way, but in 71, uh, what was that October like? Well, they were the reigning world champions, and they won, a pl they won the division again, and it was their third straight division. Uh, they came in here with all those names you mentioned, and I'll never forget the, how they came in here and were just going to come in here, win one game, and leave, and that they were going to go about their business. So they were very professional about it. Uh, they were a great team. Uh, it was kind of almost the end of their run. They would trade Frank Robinson at the, at the winter meetings. But... Uh, uh, a great organization that that continued to win. They had a great manager in Earl Weaver. A lot of guys won despite him, just like we won despite Charlie Finley. But uh, uh, it was a great learning experience. So many of our guys, like I said, had not been in any postseason at all. And this kind of gave them a little edge up the following year, knowing what to expect. Sounds like we're setting the stage for episode four as we get to some really good times, starting with 72. This should be a lot of fun. Thanks, as always. My pleasure. Steve Usenich, Memories with Voos, 54 years with the Athletics. So you can hear the entire broadcast here on A's Cast. Also every week on Thursday on our pregame shows before A's games. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.